Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to listen today as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series on Advent with a message entitled, How Christ Came from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Now, if you're looking for a place to worship, a, a people to connect with, we'd love for you to come to Calvary Baptist Church. We meet at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and our worship begins at 1030 on Sunday mornings. If you have any questions about the church, let me invite you to visit our website. That's calvaryfayetteville.com, or you can email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you would like to make a phone call, you can do that, 479-442-4634. Or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and even Twitter. Uh, we just love to connect with you. And so do reach out if you have any questions at all. Again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing another message in our A3 All About Advent series. How Christ Came from Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. Let's listen together. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4. It's been our text for the last few weeks, and I apologize for my voice today. It's going to probably sound even worse than it does most of the time. Before we get into the Word this morning, uh, we want to uh, just celebrate and uh, introduce to you uh, our newest members here at Calvary Church. You saw a couple of weeks ago five of them baptized. We have another two, one joining by transfer of letter and one joining by statement of faith. And I wouldn't, uh, for all the world, embarrass them by asking them to stand and turn around and smile at all of you, but I will ask them to just raise their hand and wave a little bit. Brother Stephen, there's Brother Stephen back there, Dwayne and John, father and son, Julia Igley, so glad to have her over here, Miss Sonia, and in the back, Ali and Courtney, so glad to have all of you guys uh, in our church, annual church uh, business last week. Uh, we actually voted these folks into full fellowship with our church, and we are so glad to have them uh, as members of our church family. Well, we asked the question again, why do we emphasize something so foreign to most of us as this idea, this season of Advent? Most of the time we talk about the Christmas season, and the Christmas season isn't officially supposed to start until after Thanksgiving. Can I get an amen to that? But all these other places, these stores and these radio stations, they start in playing Christmas music barely once Halloween is over with, of all things. But really, rather than Christmas, which is a day, we want to foster more the idea of Advent, which is truly a season. It's a season for at least four weeks leading up 
to Christmas Day, and we celebrate Advent to get away from the idea that Christmas, the celebration of Christ's birth, only deserves one day on our calendars. For the most part, the only anticipation and celebration of Christmas that most people know in our American culture has to do with the indulgence and overindulgence usually in food, festivities, and spending money on gifts that we have to pay for for months and months later. Oftentimes, it's not at all about the celebration of a Savior. And certainly, our Savior, our Lord, deserves more of our energy and attention than a single day or that a single very worldly time that most of our American culture emphasizes. So our series of messages this month is on All About Advent, A3, All About Advent. And our text every week has been and will be, Lord willing, through next Sunday, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. If you do not have a Bible with you, it's page number 974 in the Pew Bible in the book rack in front of you. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, from this passage, we are learning all about Advent. We know that Advent, by definition, has to do with an arrival. And specifically, as one dictionary describes it, I like this definition, the arrival of a notable person. And in our case, we're talking about the most notable person of all, the arrival of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> the first week, as we studied from this passage, we talked about the what of Advent. What is Advent all about? And from these verses, verses 4 and 5, we emphasize the words, God sent forth his Son. That's what Advent is all about. Forgetting everything else, all of the traditions, all of the festivities, all of the other things we typically identify with Advent, let all of that melt away. And remember this, Advent is about God sending forth his Son into the world. Then last week, we talked about when this took place. We asked the question, when did the first Advent take place? And the answer is found in the first eight words of our text. But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time being defined as God's perfectly chosen time, a time that was preordained by God in eternity past, even before there was a creation. 
It was not only preordained, but it was promised and prophesied by the Old Testament prophets as they were moved of the Holy Spirit to speak and to preach and to write. And we not only know that it was prophesied, but that it was preceded and announced by the cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, John the Baptist, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And it was John the Baptist when Jesus embarked upon his ministry at the age of 30 that announced his arrival. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So today we move to a third question. We ask, how did Advent come about? How did God do this? And we look at these words, seven of them, born of woman, born under the law. This is how Christ came. He was born of woman, born under the law. I believe those statements, those two phrases, tell us what we need to know about Advent. The first, born of woman, tells us of the physical circumstances of his birth. What were the physical circumstances of the arrival of a creator God, of the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What is fitting for the arrival of the Son of God to come to this earth sent by his Father at the perfectly arranged fullness of time? Well, typically I think that we would think that he ought to come with great fanfare, with great announcement, with great pomp and circumstance. Perhaps God could just peel away the sky and allow us to look into heaven and see this King of Kings, Lord of Lords, crashing through from eternity through time and space to be here among us. Certainly he was deserving of the greatest welcome that this world could ever offer to anybody. But that's not the way God chose to do it. He came born of a woman. And that not of a notable woman or a special woman, but just a very godly peasant girl in her teenage years. Who could have anticipated this? I ask you often, how could anybody dream up this gospel story? It makes no sense from a human perspective. Nobody thinks in terms of a king who would leave eternity, come to earth as a servant, live among us, and then die for us in our place. All other religions demand that you give away your life and die for that God, whoever he or she may be, or gods, however many there may be. But this God is a God who came to us to die for us. He had been promised for many years. Micah says this, for the Lord God Said, or excuse me, the book of Genesis says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, be, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. From the very earliest of recorded time, after the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God promised that he would send somebody to reverse the curse that was now on the earth as a result of sin. And so there was an expectation from the very first couple that somebody would come to deliver them from the consequences of their sin. So Adam and Eve looked, and they watched, and they waited. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Will one of these be the one who will reverse this curse? And then Cain rose up and slew Abel and was uh, banned and cursed. Cain was cursed by God himself. And then they discovered it wouldn't be those sons, one dead, one under God's curse. God gave them another son. His name was Seth. God actually gave them many sons and daughters. But one other one is named in Scripture. His name is Seth. And the Bible tells us when Seth had a son by the name of Enosh, that at that time people began to call upon the Lord. But again, Enosh was not the one. Generations later, there came Enoch. And he was a descendant of great promise, it would seem. He walked with God, the Bible says. And he lived a brief 365 years in a time when everybody else was living seven to 950 years. Maybe Enoch is the one. He walked with God after all. Maybe he will reverse the curse. But one day Enoch went out walking with God and didn't come back because the Bible says God took him to be with himself. And then finally, Ten generations from Adam, the most likely prospect of a Savior had finally arrived. The Bible says about him, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Make no mistake about it, Noah was the first one that was expected to be that Savior. And like Enoch, Noah walked with God. He was a godly man. And like the first man, Adam, he was later given that great de declaration of his purpose. Be fruitful and multiply and refill this earth. But you see, Noah, like Enoch, walked with God and survived something that others didn't survive. It was a flood. The relief that came in Noah's day was that this sinful world was wiped out and got a new beginning. So maybe Noah is the Savior. Maybe Noah is the one who is going to be that righteous, blameless man who walks with God. But Noah stumbled too, did he not? In an eerie kind of way, 
in the same way that Adam failed. In a garden, in a vineyard, we find that Noah got drunk and Noah dishonored his heavenly father. And Noah participated in the cause, no doubt, no doubt, of his son's failing. All their hopes were dashed. The biblical storyline was just getting started, and it seems like it was over. And so God calls out Abraham. All of a sudden now we have someone representing God in his world. But Abraham was not to be the Messiah. He had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. God said through Isaac the promise will come. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God, or actually Esau and then Jacob. And we know that God chose through Jacob. And Jacob had many sons. And God specifically said it would be through one, through Judah, that the Messiah would come. And it is against this, this backdrop of slavery and rescue and idolatry and conquest and more idolatry and judgment and a monarchy finally and more idolatry and judgment and exile that the people looked and hoped for thousands of years for that Messiah. Finally, he came in a most unexpected way, born of a woman, born under the law. Were it not for a few sleepy shepherds, no one would have heard of that song, Glory to God in the Highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, as the angels sang. Were it not for a handful of stargazers from the Far East, there would have been no gifts. Born of a woman in a stable, a cave, overlooked by everyone else. This is how the incarnation took place. Advent is about the incarnation of God into flesh. That's what incarnate, incarnate means. God became flesh and dwelt among us. John described it this way. In the beginning was the Word. Before Jesus was given the name Jesus. That's an earthly name, by the way. He wasn't Jesus in heaven. He was the Word of God. He was God in equal, co-equal form with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God the Father. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh. The Word became Jesus. The Word became the Son. For you see, He was not the Son of God in heaven. He became the Son of God at His birth. 
at his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Alistair Begg says it this way. There was a time when Jesus was God, but not man. There never has been a time when he has been man, but not God. So when God incarnate became man, he was still God all the time. How did this happen? It happened through a virgin birth. Had it happened in, in a completely normal way with a physical, fleshly father, he could not be the son of God. He would have been born with a sinful nature. But you see, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It was a miraculous, it was a virgin birth. And being born of a woman, by the way, is the only way in the world a person can be born. We live in a culture today that tells us man can be woman, woman can be man, that you just pick and choose your preference, whatever works out for you. If you want to, you can add a furry tail to the back of your pants and some ears on your head, and you can go to school and be a cat or a rabbit or whatever you want to be. I'm going to tell you, there's one human race. There are two genders, man and woman, and Jesus was born in the flesh. Today, there are more than 8 billion people in this world, and guess what? Every single one was born of a woman. Jesus was. But he didn't have an earthly father. He had an adopted father, Joseph. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Folks, let me, I know you believe this. Perhaps all of you do. I, I hope so about the incarnation and the virgin birth. You see, in our world today, the skeptics and the atheists will embrace the idea of a historical Jesus. A man who once lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus. They will accept him as a rabbi, a teacher, or whatever. Oftentimes they'll say he was a misguided and self-proclaimed Messiah. That in reality he was a deceiver. And so they'll accept the humanity of Jesus, but have trouble with the deity of Jesus. You and I have a different problem. Those of us who are Christians, we seem to have little problem embracing the idea of a divine Jesus, that he was God in the flesh, but we struggle with his humanity. We, we kind of keep him like those old paintings by the masters that were in my grandparents' family Bible. This showed Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple or that showed Jesus teaching on the mountainside from the sermon or giving the Sermon on the Mount, and always around Jesus, there's some kind in those paintings or some kind of a holy glow all the time. Forgive the lengthy reading, but I want you to hear how Max Lucado, perhaps you have described the humanity of Christ better than anyone. A portion of his writing is in your worship guide. Listen to these words. God became a man. 
while the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God came near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons? Can you imagine? Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing is for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was susceptible to willing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable.
but don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. Listen to him. Love your neighbor was spoken by a man whose neighbors tried to kill him. The challenge to leave family for the gospel was issued by one who kissed his mother goodbye in the doorway. Pray for those who persecute you came from the lips that would soon be begging God to forgive his murderers. I am with you always are the words of a God who in one instant did the impossible to make it all possible for you and me. It all happened in a moment, in one moment, a most remarkable moment, the Word became flesh. The first advent went unnoticed by the world, but you can bet that the second advent won't. You see, in becoming man, God made it possible for man to see God. And when Jesus went home to heaven, he left the back door open. And in the meantime, we have this promise from Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friends, the one who hears your prayers understands your pain. He's been through it. And because Jesus is human, he understands you. But because he is divine, he's the only one who can help you. Born of a woman, God made flesh. That's how Advent took place. That's the physical circumstances. But if you'll give me just a moment or two, notice the other phrase. This is the spiritual circumstances of his birth. He was born under the law. What does that mean? Born under the law? Is that the law of a pagan government of Rome? Well, certainly he was born under that law too, but that's not what it's referring to here. What it means to be born under the law is that Jesus was an Israelite by birth. He was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. Matthew begins his gospel with the lineage of Joseph. Why? Matthew is writing to religious Jews. 
And for anyone to be a king or a priest or be acknowledged, that man had to be able to prove his lineage. That's why Matthew begins with Abraham and goes down through Joseph. But you say, wait a minute, Joseph wasn't his father. So Jesus was not of the right lineage through Judah, a tribe of Judah, in order to be that king or priest. But guess what? Mary was also of the lineage of Judah. And so, yes, he was a descendant of the right tribe to be the king. And so understand, he was a descendant of Abraham. He was of the tribe of Judah. And being an Israelite by birth, being a Jew, being a descendant of Abraham, he was born under the law, meaning the law of Moses of the Old Testament. Now, the book of Galatians, where we take our text from, this book is talking about the law and about people like you and me, Christians, who have experienced the grace of God, recognizing that by the law we could never earn our way into heaven, we could never meet all of the law's demands, all of its requirements. You did not contribute anything to your conversion except the sin that made it necessary. The law was not given to us to save us. The law was given to the Jewish people to show the righteous expectations of a holy God. If it were not for the law, we would not be sinners. If there was no law, then there would be no expectation that we live up to God's standards. But God told us through the law, told his people through the law, what God's holiness and righteousness demanded, and his people could not live up to it. And that's why Paul tells these Galatians, listen, you've been saved by grace. Don't now be falling back into being law keepers, trying to earn your way into God's favor. He said the law was what condemned us. We could not keep it and live up to it. He said it was like a schoolmaster. We were in bondage to the law. We were kept, it was like a schoolmaster to teach us and to show us how we needed a Savior. It was like that schoolmaster that would go out and gather up the students and bring them to the place of learning and there tutor them according to what they needed to know. The law brought us to the feet of a Savior who died in our place, who fulfilled the law perfectly for us. And by His grace, we experience justification. We're made innocent. We, Christ became not only the justification for our sins, He became the propitiation for it. He satisfied the Father perfectly for us. The law brought us to the Lord and showed us our need for grace. Under the law, we are all guilty. We're all cursed. We're all killed. Only under grace can we be made innocent, delivered, and alive. Jesus was born under that law, under its expectations, and he was the only person in history to live up to its expectations and its demands 
perfectly. He did that for us. He did that in our place. You say, but I'm not a Jew. I'm not born as a descendant of Abraham. But understand, what was true about the Jewish people is true for all humanity. That God's expectation is not something different for us. That God's holiness is not is not something we could ever achieve. And it's through Christ. Though Christ was without sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to tell you, folks, this is a perplexing way to save the world. For God to come in such a perplexing way in Bethlehem, not even a decent suburb of the great capital city of Jerusalem, just a dirty, bywater little place. No room for a king. There was no place for a king. Born of a virgin who ever heard of anything, Jesus lived under the reputation that his mother was an immoral woman all the days of his life. He grew up in a perplexing way. Nazareth, that's even further from the capital than Bethlehem. Nazareth, that's like me telling someone, I came from Mountain View, Arkansas. They've got ideas about what that means. And by the way, when I came from there, it doesn't mean that you could instantly play bluegrass music just because you were from there. It was just a little town of all white people, the whole county, bunch of rednecks, backwoods, hillbillies. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Even one of the apostles asked that question. He grew up poor. He grew up unknown. And he left this world in a perplexing way. He wasn't just born in a perplexing way. He didn't just grow up in a perplexing way. He left in a perplexing way. Nobody other than a handful of people ever believed in who he was. He died as a common criminal. To the Jews, he was a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it was all so foolish. Nailed to a cross between two thieves, stripped naked, dying for other people. How far is Bethlehem from Golgotha? Less than five miles. Less than a two-hour walk from the cradle to the cross. Jesus' physical life ended just a short distance from where it began. And so listen to me. This is how it comes to us. Here's Jesus in a manger, covered in blood and vernix, born in a barn as an impoverished peasant, and later covered in blood and tears, killed on a cross as an ordinary criminal. This is how God comes to save us, beginning in blood and ending in blood. It just doesn't make sense. 
but it isn't finished. Folks, the story isn't finished. We continue to wait and ask, How long, O Lord, until you come again to judge the living and the dead? How long until you come in glory to make all things right, to reverse the curse? As those people in the Old Testament waited and waited and waited and waited until you came, now we wait and we wait and we wait. How long shall it be? At the heart and soul of the Christian faith, is the conviction that God in the entirely unique person of Jesus Christ shall make all things new. Every tear shall be wiped away, every sin forgiven, every loss you've experienced will be restored. So here we are between two advents, the already the first Advent, we celebrate this season. And the yet to come, the Advent of His return, which will not be in secret, which will not be like the first, but shall come in the way that you would expect the King of kings, the Lord of glory to come in great power to make all things right. Whatever you're going through right now, celebrate the fact that because of his first coming, we can know him as our Savior. And because of the second coming, this Lord is going to make everything right in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your home, in your world. He will make all things right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this Advent season where we celebrate the fact that you sent forth your son, that it all happened in the fullness of time, that he was born of a woman, born under the law. He became one of us without sin so that he might point us the way and lead us in the way that leads to eternal life. Father, if there was anyone here today under the sound of my voice that does not know you as Savior, will you call them to yourself even today? Would you call them to salvation even today? And Father, for those of us who know you, may you fix our eyes on our Savior and our Lord. Help us to celebrate this Advent season in the right way by keeping Christ at the center. And give us hope Give us confidence that all that you said you were going to do will be done through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.